My name is Michelle Yehi Lee. I cover money and politics at The Washington Post. You may have heard the words, follow the money. I follow the money. The journalism I do depends on subscribers to The Washington Post. Become one today at postreports.com slash subscribe. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Simon from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Let me get a second. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, January 15th. Today, articles of impeachment finally head to the Senate. Bernie Sanders makes inroads in Iowa and a landmark deal for the WNBA. So the next phase of the impeachment process began today. The question is on the adoption of the resolution. All in favor say aye. Opposed no. The ayes have it. The resolution is adopted. Gentlemen, the House formally transmitted articles of impeachment to the Senate and appointed impeachment managers, the folks who are going to kind of manage the case for the prosecution, if you will, which is what sets the stage for a trial in the Senate. And so that is where we are now at long last headed, a trial of President Donald J. Trump in the United States Senate. I'm Roz Helderman. I'm an investigative reporter for the political staff. So the first thing that happened was that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi appointed impeachment managers, and they include a number of familiar names, but most notably Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, and Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, who were the two who kind of managed the investigation phase when the impeachment process was in the House. And then what do we know about what this process is going to look like going forward? So we haven't seen one of these trials since the trial of Bill Clinton in the late 1990s. And the Senate is allowed to set its own rules. So we don't know exactly what this thing is going to look like yet. What we do know is that this first week with the transmittal of the articles from the House will be largely pomp and circumstance. The sort of reading of the charges, the appointing of the people who are going to be involved, the informing of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, who actually presides over the trial, that his services are formal needed. And then I think next week, we'll start to see what this trial thing is actually going to look at. There's still an ongoing fight in the Senate over, you know, whether they would accept new evidence and even hear from witnesses who either appeared before the House, uh, hear from them sort of anew in the Senate, or even new witnesses who had not appeared before the House, most notably Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton. And it's worth pointing out that the trial is going to start on Tuesday. And then in theory, it's going to be six days a week until it's over. Yeah. And there's been some debate on the Republican side and in Trump world whether it's better to have a very short trial to have or maybe to have a longer trial that requires Democratic senators who are running for president to spend more time in Washington. But it is what the Senate will do full time until They conclude the presentation of the case, and there is a vote among the jurors as to whether or not the president is convicted, the jurors, of course, being the members of the United States Senate. So as all of this is ramping up and as we're finally getting details on what this trial is actually going to look like, House Democrats on Tuesday night released this collection of documents related to the trial. 
what were these documents? Yeah. So what was really interesting is the Democrats basically said, look, we did all this investigation, but there's a lot more out there that could be gotten potentially by the Senate uh, if they chose to dig just a little bit. So these were documents that had been provided by Lev Parnas, one of the two Ukrainian-American associates of Rudy Giuliani, who were working with Giuliani, the president's personal attorney, on this sort of mission to find dirt in Ukraine. Uh, Mr. Parnas has been indicted in New York on campaign finance charges. And so his documents have been kind of locked up in this criminal process. But just on Sunday, his attorney got permission from the criminal authorities in New York to provide the material to Congress. So this is very much late breaking. And when we talk about documents, like what kinds of documents are they and what do they actually say? Yeah, they're mostly text messages and emails. I think text messages and WhatsApp encrypted messages that uh, Mr. Parnas exchanged with various people. It's also a few other things. There is a letter in the batch. It's a letter from Rudy Giuliani to President Zelensky of Ukraine that was written written in May, where he describes his desire to meet with the president of Ukraine. And our understanding is that he was meeting with him to discuss his desire for these investigations. And it sort of describes in the letter how he's coming as the president's personal attorney, but he's still invoking the name of the president and essentially kind of conducting foreign policy in this weird role as a private citizen acting on the president's behalf. Uh, So that was one of the documents. There was really quite a lot there. So if there's this letter from this this lawyer who is an associate of Giuliani to someone in Ukraine basically saying that I am a personal lawyer on behalf of the president, why does that matter? Why is that important? I think what the letter really shows is that this whole effort to pressure Ukraine was done to help the president personally. Uh, Giuliani says he's reaching out for the president in his capacity as a private citizen. This was not about what was good for the country, and Giuliani is acknowledging that. It was about what was good for Donald Trump personally. And so it really shows and illustrates the way this mission that Giuliani uh, was on for the president's personal benefit came to be totally wrapped up with the U.S. formal and official foreign policy goals. And then some of these documents also mentioned Marie Yovanovitch, who was the former ambassador to Ukraine. Yeah, we learned a lot new about the effort to oust Marie Yovanovitch from these documents. Really interesting stuff. People may remember from the impeachment testimony uh, that she was this long-serving career diplomat that Trump allies decided she was not loyal to the president, and they pushed and they pushed until the president essentially fired her very unceremoniously. Ukrainians who preferred to play by the old corrupt rules sought to remove me. What continues to amaze me is that they found Americans willing to partner with them and working together, they apparently succeeded in orchestrating the removal of a U.S. ambassador. I think she was officially recalled in May. And one thing we learned from these documents is there is a series of messages that are exchanged between this Giuliani associate and the top prosecutor of Ukraine, Yuri Lutsenko. Yovanovitch believed, she testified, that Lutsenko had played a role in having her removed. They had clashed. He was opposed to her efforts to fight corruption. But what these messages show is quite explicitly he is linking the effort to investigate Biden, to his desire to see her removed. He's sending notes that say things like, you know, if Madam isn't removed, everything I say about B is undermined. 
B, meaning potentially Biden. Potentially Biden, also possibly Burisma, which is the company that Biden's son Hunter uh, served on the board of. And there's some other messages like that. I mean, he's really pushing for her removal. He sort of says, you know, I'm investigating the CEO of that company and you guys can't remove a simple fool. And uh, Parnas's response to that essentially is, you know, essentially she is no fool, but she won't get away. And she didn't get away. She was ultimately fired. So these two pieces of evidence, how do you think Democrats are going to be able to use them during the impeachment trial? You know, I I think one thing they will do, which doesn't require kind of understanding all the nuances and all the ins and the outs. I mean, the fight right now has largely been about whether or not the Senate will take new evidence, right? I mean, the thing they really want is John Bolton. There's this feeling that John Bolton could really be a very powerful witness. He did not testify to the House. And so put aside anything about what these records actually show They do provide a powerful argument that there's a lot more out there, right, and that if you were to call witnesses, you would be likely to learn new things. Uh, So I would suspect that to start with, that is the, the first way they will be used. As part of the debate about whether or not the Senate is going to call witnesses, they could, of course, also call Mr. Parnas himself. Parnas's lawyer has said he is eager to testify. And so, you know, clearly he has a he has a story to tell if they would call him. And then when it comes to the actual charge of abuse of power, do the narrative that these documents tell, do they bolster the what Democrats are going to be able to say about whether or not President Trump was guilty of that abuse of power? Look, any criminal trial, any trial of any kind is sort of a mosaic of evidence, right? So I don't know that there's any one document amongst this batch that shows, you know, in a new and clear way exactly what the president did, but they certainly add to the overall picture. You understand a lot more what Giuliani and his associates were up to. You understand more how the firing of Ivanovich might have been linked to their desire to get information about Biden. It actually seems as though those two things might have been explicitly linked, which was not at all clear during the House testimony. There was always this sort of confusion. Why was it so important to these people to get rid of this one ambassador? What was it that they thought, you know, they could get if they got her removed? Well, it may be that the people in Ukraine, they were counting on to help them get information about Biden. They wanted it. So they were doing their bidding. So again, I think what this new information does is it just adds to the picture. Every little building block that kind of shows you what the president and his people were up to. Roz Helderman is a political investigations reporter. is Senator Bernie Sanders doing in the early primary states as of now? Ever since early October, when Senator Sanders suffered a heart attack, he has seen his campaign slowly but surely start to ascend again. Robert Costa is a national political reporter for The Post. This candidate who did so well at times during the 2016 presidential campaign found himself continuing to raise a ton of money. And he had a lot of grassroots support. So between October and January, he started to rise in the polls. And in that 
quote, gold standard poll that everyone talks about, the Des Moines Register poll, he is now leading in Iowa, the first voting state. And of course, on Tuesday night, we had the last debate before the Iowa caucus. How did Sanders do there? Sanders stuck to his message, talking up Medicare for all. Medicare for all will cost substantially less than the status quo. Talking about the American people are sick and tired of endless wars. Overhauling the federal government at many different levels. Bottom line here is I am sick and tired of trade agreements negotiated by the CEOs of large corporations. But his whole performance came down to his exchange with Senator Elizabeth Warren, his rival on the left, about a conversation that took place months ago in private, all about the context of those remarks. In 2018, you told her that you did not believe that a woman could win the election. Why did you say that? Well, as a matter of fact, I didn't say it. Uh, And I don't want to waste a whole lot of time on this because this is what Donald Trump and maybe some of the media want. Uh, Anybody knows me knows that it's incomprehensible that I would think that a woman could not be president of the United States. Go to YouTube today. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election. That is correct. Senator Warren, what did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? (laughs) I disagreed. Senator Warren maintains, and she stood by her position. So, can a woman beat Donald Trump? Look at the men on this stage. Collectively, they have lost 10 elections. The only people on this stage who have won every single election that they've been in are the women, Amy and me. So the fact that this debate over whether or not Sanders had told her that he didn't think that a woman could win the the presidency against Trump, the fact that that has been hanging over yesterday's debate, the fact that it has been hanging over the campaign for the last couple of days, what do you think that says about where we're at now and specifically where Senator Sanders is positioned in this campaign? It comes at a critical moment in the Democratic presidential race because you saw this week Senator Booker from New Jersey drops out of the 2020 contest. And so you have a real discussion in the Democratic Party about gender and about race. Is Senator Warren getting enough attention, credit in the polls from voters for her record? Is she being pulled back at all because of her gender? That's a discussion I heard when I was on the trail in Iowa in recent weeks. So these are the conversations that were circulating in Democratic ranks heading into this debate. Senator Sanders, it should be noted, is not someone who runs on cultural themes or debates or often talks about what's in the headlines. He sticks to his message. But he's gotten pulled into this riptide because of his alleged comment against uh, about Senator Warren. You've spent some time with Senator Sanders on the trail. What was that like? And what have you noticed about how his campaign is going and how he is trying to strategize specifically in Iowa? I spent about a week covering Senator Sanders. It was the perfect time to cover Senator Sanders. It was right after Christmas and into the new year. Almost no one seemed to be in Iowa because it was that rare moment just before the caucuses where most people take vacation. So I had a lot of access to see how voters interacted with him in small settings. These weren't arena rallies. What's notable about what he's doing now is how it's different from what I covered in 2016. 
And what I saw back then was a politician who did rally after rally, talked about revolution. He always would talk about revolution. Now his message is still about revolution in general, and he's not moderated at all. But what he's doing now is concentrating his entire pitch on health care costs. There's a rage aspect to what he's doing about a system that he believes does not serve working people. So he'll begin his events with almost a town hall-like setting, and people will go on. It's almost like a talk show. Questions on this side. I want to go around the room. Okay. Where he'll go from person to person. I see a woman in red right there. All right, so fire away. Anybody have any comments or questions? Yes. All right. Maybe one or two more questions here. Stand up. All right. And we will get your mic. If you can just give us your name. Hi, my name is Jeff. We pay 30 And they'll go around and around until they're whipped into this frustration, this grievance about the healthcare system. We need to get involved. And then he says, And Jeff is absolutely right. And the issue of healthcare, all right? Now, it's time for you to understand the only way to address this is Medicare for all. Jeff, you talk about how you pay for healthcare. So the next time you see one of my opponents, Hey, Bernie, how are you going to pay for Medicare for all? Jeff is paying for it right now. $30,000 a year. And it's a healthcare heavy message. We have got to have the courage to work together to create a Medicare for all system so that Jeff's family and every other family in America can have the quality, affordable health care. And it's interesting because the way that I've always understood Sanders' success, both in the campaign so far and also in 2016, is that he has this small and somewhat limited but very intense fandom. People who love him, love all of his ideas, are obsessed with him, but that I think the assumption was that that there was a ceiling to that. But now it seems like he does at least appear to be able to get some some support outside of that, of people who may not be excited about, quote-unquote, socialism as an idea or who may not be excited to hear themes of revolution but are still finding something that resonates from him. And I guess a lot of that is about healthcare. It is a lot about healthcare, And he's changed his approach because he doesn't want to be seen as a total outsider or someone who's a democratic socialist beating that drum each and every day. Instead of saying democratic socialism all the time, he'll instead talk about fiscal responsibility. He'll say, if you spend too much money on a house, the government shouldn't back you up. If you spend money on stocks and the stocks go down, the government shouldn't back you up. But he says, if you have a health care problem, the government should be there to back you up. So he's trying to say to people, he's not way out there. He's not fringe. Your point about his ceiling is important. You look at the polls, he has a very, very strong base. Many people are committed to caucusing for him, to voting for him in the primary. But when I was on the trail in Iowa, there were many voters, some of them female, who have bad memories of 2016. They do not believe that Senator Sanders and his supporters did enough to turn out and to show energy for Secretary Clinton's campaign. And you can't understand what happened at the debate this week between Warren and Sanders without understanding that lingering dynamic. But then what about Joe Biden? How does Sanders intend to win against the person who really embodies this idea of the moderate Democrat, that that people who don't see themselves as part of the ultra-left, that they can vote for? The Sanders-Warren fight is so interesting because it's not what Sanders wants to be talking about. When you talk to Sanders' advisors, they rather go after Vice President Biden. They see in him a political target that's pretty ripe. And the debate started 
last night with Sanders talking about Biden's past support for intervention in Iraq. The war in Iraq turned out to be the worst foreign policy blunder in the modern history of this country. That issue has haunted the Democratic Party for more than a decade. Joe and I listened to what Dick Cheney and George Bush and Rumsfeld had to say. I thought they were lying. I didn't believe them for a moment. I took to the floor. I did everything I could to prevent that war. And Senator Sanders believes, because he was so anti-war for years, he can cast himself as the champion, the standard bearer for the anti-war wing of the Democratic Party. And in terms of the people that that Sanders is reaching out to, the people that he thinks can be part of his base, are those people different now than they would have been in 2016? They actually are. Iowa is 90 percent white. That other 10 percent, that's a target block for Democratic presidential candidates, including Senator Sanders. When I went to Iowa, the first event I went to was a T.O. Bernie event. That's an affectionate term in Spanish. T.O. Bernie. Yeah, I get it. T.O. Bernie. And you see Senator Sanders, (laughs) who struggled in South Carolina with black voters in 2016. His campaign now realizes he needs to build out his coalition. So there are many Latino voter events, African-American voter events, youth events. And you see him trying to reach out to working class minority voters in, in particular and saying to them, I will fight for you. He's been helped by AOC, Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez of New York, a freshman who has been on the road for him and using that term, Tio Bernie, saying to Latino voters, you may not have been with Sanders before, but if you really want change, he's the one. There are still some liabilities for Senator Sanders on the campaign trail, though. I think specifically the fact that he had a heart attack, even though his polls have increased since then, I think that A lot of people continue to be concerned about that, as well as the fact that he talks constantly about Medicare for all, and he still refuses to say exactly how he plans to pay for that, and even when he was asked about it last night. Senator Sanders, you've consistently refused to say exactly how much your Medicare for all plan is going to cost. Don't voters deserve to see the price tag before you send them a bill that could cost tens of trillions of dollars? The answer that he gave was sort of... Wobbly. Well, what I will tell you is Medicare for all, which will guarantee comprehensive health care to every man, woman and child, will cost substantially less than the status quo. So what do you think are the things that could still plague him in these early primary states? Let's talk about both of those. On the age front, Bernie Sanders is 78 years old. His doctors released three letters in recent weeks, saying he's in great health. That said, the letters did acknowledge he has had some heart damage. Anyone who's had a heart attack is going to have some heart damage. The challenge for Sanders now is convincing people that he would be the oldest nominee in history, the oldest president in history. Does he have the vitality to carry it forward? So on the Medicare for all cost front, His whole approach to Medicare for All is to not give a definitive number because he believes that can be negotiated. And his whole argument to voters is don't think about it in terms of the exact cost of the program because he believes healthcare costs across the board would be lowered if you had a single payer system. The challenge for Senator Sanders is you may have an ambition on healthcare, but Congress is going to want to have a say. 
They're going to want to have details. The Congressional Budget Office is going to score legislation. So eventually, you're going to have to have a price tag that you communicate to the American people. Bob Costa is a national political reporter for The Post. How many weeks? It's three weeks to Iowa, right? What is time? It feels like an yeah, eternity. It's 20, that's what they said, 20 days. This is this period where <laughs> Iowa feels like it's tomorrow and it also feels like it's <laughs> a year, year away. Yeah, and it yeah, also exactly. feels like it'll never come. And now, one more thing. Let's hear it. All right, some breaking news. The WNBA, we're so thrilled to announce the WNBA and the Players Association led by NECA. On Tuesday morning, it was announced that the WNBA and its players union reached a new collective bargaining agreement. We're also going to be providing a platform around health and wellness and really what, redefining what it means to be a professional women's athlete, a mom. Uh, you know, we have so we have entrepreneurs in the league. It's just really going to be a great platform for us. To My name is Ava Wallace, and I cover the WNBA, among many other sports at The Post. So this new labor deal that, if ratified by both the members of the Players Union and the Board of Governors, will run for eight years, so the beginning of this 2020 season through 2027 season, that says there's going to be a sharp increase in player compensation across the board and a lot better benefits for players. So that's maternal care benefits and child care benefits, enhanced travel standards, and an avenue towards a better revenue sharing model. So right now, WNBA players get about 20 to 30 percent equity when it comes to revenue of the league. And in 2021, it could bump up to 50-50. So players are getting 50 percent of the revenue and they split that with owners. The interesting part about this CBA with the WNBA is that, and something this is something the WNBA is really conscious of, but there's not really a women's sports league that is even in the position to be having this conversation. And that's something that Commissioner Kathy Engelbert said on a teleconference on Tuesday. If we can't make this women's league work, then nobody can. We need to try some things differently, and this is... One of the areas that we're going to try differently is to make sure we're paying our top players something they're proud of so that it lifts everybody and it lifts, gives hope to the next generation of players coming into our league. So concerning maternity leave, we asked the commissioner, Kathy Engelbert, what is the kind of new policy on maternity leave? What does that mean? And it, the WNBA in this new deal is offering um, full paid maternity leave, your full salary, whereas before that was kind of the recommendation, but really it was based on a team by team basis. So if teams wanted to pay somebody on maternity leave their full salary, they could. But a lot of teams, you know, were just paying half the salary or something like that. We also asked her how long maternity leave is. Certainly as long as the player needs and, and we've committed to uh, full salary on maternity we don't obviously know exactly what that means or if there are further parameters because we haven't actually seen the wording of the CBA yet, but that is what the commissioner said. Billie Jean King actually had a great tweet that said this is going to change what it means to be a female athlete in this country and, and in this kind of time. And it does just because this is the first real investment we're seeing from a league saying that we need to put players first and we need to put player well-being first. You know, in terms of starting a conversation for other women's sports leagues, the WNBA is leagues ahead, literally leagues ahead. They've been around since 1997. And this is, when you look at the history of the league, this is going to be one of the, the biggest kind of marks on the timeline. Mm-hmm. 
Ava Wallace is a sports reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. And join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 